Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, and this is the podcast. This is uh, the podcast here with Luke Doris, where we talk about hurricanes. This is podcast number four of 2019. We made it to number four, and this is a good one. Yeah, already. I mean, yeah. we're a little bit ahead of the, the average so far for the season, aren't we? Well, we had one hurricane, one tropical storm, and uh, tropical depression just wrapped up in podcast number four already. Yes, and we're, we're a little bit ahead of schedule in hurricane season 2019, uh, just looking at averages in terms of numbers of named storms, which is a terrible way to determine where we are in sure. hurricane season because funny things can happen. Well, today we're going to talk with Dr. Jack Bevan, who's a senior hurricane specialist at the National Hurricane Center. Jack knows all kinds of interesting things about hurricanes, one of the most interesting hurricane people you will ever know. But most immediately, he and Stacy Stewart, another of the senior hurricane specialists, did the analysis and wrote the report on Hurricane Michael where they determined the evidence said that Michael had Category 5 wins at landfall. You remember when the, the word came out after all that analysis earlier this year that it was a Category 5. So we're going to talk about that process and that conclusion. And uh, it, it's a, a very, very interesting. Uh, Jack's done some presentations on it that I've seen, and it's a fascinating uh, a bit of work. We're recording this podcast on Tuesday, July 23rd, 2019. If you're listening at some point in the future, you've got to tune in to Local 10 in South Florida or check local10.com, the Max Tracker app, or the local, uh, local 10 uh, weather app for current information. And be on the lookout for Brian Norcross Talks Tropics newsletter. You can sign up for it. Uh, and have it emailed to you uh, every time uh, I put it out, which is most days these days, because most days there's something going on in the tropics. If you go to local10.com and then click on weather and scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, you put in your email and you'll get it. You'll get it every time it's published. Okay, so we just got the word from the Hurricane Center that that uh, the tropical depression that we thought actually had a little tiny window of time that it might have turned into Chantal. It might have gotten a little bit stronger. But it dissipated, and it dissipated because they really couldn't find a circulation. But they did find a little bit stronger winds, so it was kind of an interesting, uh, interesting system all the way around. So those strong winds were those well away from where the center would have been? Would that? Have oh been yeah, around? way away from the center. They're way off to the east. Everything was pushed off to the east there because uh, what happened was with the system is we have a front coming down, an unusually strong cold front. In summer, July. In July, a summertime cold front coming all the way to Florida. Now, it's not going to get here to South Florida, but it is coming into Florida. And the winds ahead of that at the surface and aloft are from the west. And those west winds just overwhelmed the western side, the weak side of the depression, and, and the hurricane hunter really couldn't find uh, a good closed circulation that uh, qualified to continue calling into tropical depression. So it fell apart, fell apart pretty quickly there at the end, but it was also the little storm that defied the odds a little bit too because the day before it was looking just scrawny and raggedy on satellite. The National Hurricane Center had a 10% chance of development. didn't look good. And uh, come in the next day, we've got a tropical depression. So it was able to get a little circulation going there briefly, which what that happens sometimes out when when the the wind shear dies just ahead of the front mm -hmm. and uh, you can get these to spin up on you a little bit. Yeah. Ahead of cold fronts, especially cold fronts, you you can get 
a pocket of air that it doesn't have uh, unfavorable winds, has moderately favorable winds aloft. And, of course, around this part of the world, the water is always plenty warm, so there's never a shortage of fuel for these things. And if the disturbance finds that little pocket, it can spin up. But what was interesting was it spun up, and we thought, wow, this is really going. And then it just died almost completely uh, but they hung with it. I, I give them a lot of credit for hanging with it. And, it, it, and then it came back today, and it looked, again, uh, more like a depression with some pretty strong cells on the east side. But anyway, it's, it's died out now. So that's the last we'll hear of that. But this cold front has some possibility of hanging in the Gulf and creating another uh, short-term depression uh, just because the cold front comes with spinning air, essentially. The Gulf is extraordinarily warm, as we saw with Barry, and something may have a little window of time late in the week to develop. So that's, is that the deal, Brian, where you have what we call vorticity mm-hmm. along the front, so spinning mm-hmm. over the, the warm waters, but it wouldn't be tropical to start, so it would need a certain amount of time over those waters to develop tropical characteristics? Is right, it has to for? warm. The, the atmosphere has to warm because it's starting out with dry and relatively cool. It's not especially cool by the time it gets north of the front, but it's certainly dry. So you have all this dry air north of the front. You have the very moist air south of the front, but it's over waters in the upper 80s to near 90 degrees. So uh, there's enough if it sits there and that spinning sits there long enough and thunderstorms really can develop around it, then it can warm enough to become a tropical system. Hurricane Center has uh, 20% on it now, I think, at the end of the week. Um, and, you know, it's a maybe, but it wouldn't last very long. It doesn't have much room to maneuver. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have time to stay there. It's going to move on out to the east pretty quickly. So it's not a, a special concern, and it's certainly not any concern to, to us here in South Florida. So, uh, like I said, just to to mark the calendar, on average, the third name storm comes along on August 13th. So we've got, you know, we're well ahead of time because we've had two, right? So uh, if we get another one before August 13th, uh, if we we get it on August 13th, we'll be right on average schedule in terms of of name storms. But as I said, the naming of storms doesn't really... (laughs) Doesn't really, um, it's not a good measure of how busy the hurricane season is. Much There are other better measures in terms of how strong the storms get and how long they last and, and so forth. And anyway, we'll talk about that on another uh, podcast. So, But let's bring in uh, Dr. Jack Bevan at the National Hurricane Center. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Brian. Jack, were you involved with this uh, depression at all? I know you're at the Hurricane Center right now. I was not working any of the operational shifts today. We had the the desk already covered. I was looking over the shoulder and uh, pretty summed it up quite well. There was some dry air in the vicinity of the system. It was also relatively small. Uh, that, uh, at the very least, slowed its initial development. One of the reasons we had a relatively low percentage to begin with. And then as, as it uh, went through the Bermuda High, turning northward and started approaching that oncoming funnel system, it just was not strong enough to maintain itself in that environment. And as you pointed out, the reconnaissance plan we sent out there this morning found it on the first try through, but uh, later found that the circulation had dissipated. And at that point, uh, we uh, discontinued writing advisories. The remains of the system will go out to sea along the uh, frontal boundary coming off the uh, southeast U.S. coast. Yeah, when I saw the west winds 
on the west side of the storm, I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> uh, this isn't going to this isn't going to be with us very long. So, all right, well, good. I'm uh, glad we're we're past that and and uh, now dealing with a really unusual cold front coming into the northern Gulf. But Jack, let's let's talk about uh, Michael because the the big headline that came out of Michael, of course is that it was the upgrade to Category 5. I mean, there were all the headlines in terms of the damage and the incredible storm that it was, but in the 2019 headline was your work upgrading it. But before we talk about that, uh, just for people that are listening that might get confused between knots and miles per hour, just to be clear, that operationally, Michael was 155 miles per hour. If it had been 160, that would have been Category 5. So the line in miles per hour is between 155 and 160. But sort of internally and scientifically, we tend to use knots. So the line between in knots between Category 4 and Category 5 is 135 to 140. So just in terms of our conversation, uh, whatever is most comfortable for you, but I wanted to to put that out there because I know that that for some folks is confusing. Well, I'll stick to miles per hour as best I can here. And the presentation that I uh, gave at the National Hurricane Conference, I think I tried to do everything in miles per hour except the reconnaissance data, which uh, is, is normally done in knots. And you know, the, uh, interest, the issue of Michael is that made landfall is the very destructive category. We said in real time, Category 4 hurricane up in the Mexico Beach area. And in real time, we assess the winds at 155 miles per hour. Uh, after the fact, and we do a after-the-fact review of every tropical cyclone that occurs, we'll even, we'll even be doing one for Tropical Depression three, as lowly and short-lived as it was. <laughs> um, and we determined that the winds at Michael's Landfall were actually about five miles per hour higher, 160 miles per hour. Now. In terms of the meteorological importance of that, that is in the noise level, a five-mile-per-hour change from 155 to 160 miles per hour. But in terms of how we classify hurricanes, particularly on the Sanford-Simpson hurricane wind scale, it was a big deal because it pushed the storm from the upper end of Category 4 into the Category 5 category, and that put it, from a historical standpoint, into some rather rarefied air. The numbers of Category 5 hurricanes that have hit the United States is uh, very thin on the ground indeed, while there have been a bunch of Category 4s. But the reality is this 5-mile-per-hour change, we make that quite a bit in these post-analysis of, of hurricanes after the fact and when we're writing our reports. But in this case, it just happened to make a big deal in in how we looked at it from a historical and classification standpoint. Well, and also, too, it raises the uh, the awareness, maybe, of the storm and its significance to the people that have been impacted by it, too, I would imagine. I mean, uh, it's just, you know, when you say that this is one of four Category 5 hurricanes to ever hit, uh, maybe they get a little bit more attention and some people that maybe could use it. That certainly yeah, took they were happy in Panama City to yeah. have it upgraded. You bet, you bet. Yeah. Uh, so, Jack, in your report, you make the point that there is about a 10% error around wind speed estimates made at the National Hurricane Center. Yet you work very hard to come up with exactly the right number. How do you reconcile those two issues? Well, we reconcile that because we know from our experience and our practice here that we can never fully sample 
the winds of the hurricane. They are changing too much spatially inside the hurricane, and we only sample a relatively small part of the hurricane in terms of spatial coverage. They also change quite a bit temporally. If you took a graph of the of the actual uh, maximum one-minute sustained wind in a hurricane, which is a standard we use, and plotted it up over one minute, you'd see a lot of uh, ups and downs of what we would call high-frequency noise that we actually filter out as part of our advisory process, since we write it in best track process, because we, we write advisories only every few hours, and we ran off to the nearest five miles per hour when we're putting things in the advisory. But we do know from our experience that the chances that any of our instruments, aircraft, surface observations, or even Doppler radar, are going to sample the absolute maximum winds of the hurricane at any given time is not very good. Plus, we have to be aware that the hurricane itself is a very dynamic, ever-changing weather system, and therefore the winds like to go up and down a little bit, uh, sort of oscillating around uh, a more steady uh, intensity. So we try to take all this into account when we put uh, together our best track, our final intensity as we call it, but we know that there's a, there's a margin of error on this for some reason or another. If we get a very high wind, there's a chance it might have been representative of some short-lived phenomenon inside the hurricane. If we get lower winds, we might not have sampled the maximum winds. And there's all sorts of things we take into account when we're putting these numbers together, both in real time for our advisories and after the fact. Yeah, I read that specifically in the uh, uh, your reanalysis at the flight level winds that the likelihood that you had actually sampled the most powerful part of the storm, uh, you know, it's a good chance that maybe that wasn't. But you know, thinking if you add 10 percent to many category fours, that puts the winds into category five range. For example, uh, does that mean that the statement that there are only four Cat fives that have made landfall in the mainland U.S. in the record book, do, do they need an asterisk? Uh, I would say no, it does not need an asterisk because we've tried to apply the same standards of judgment whenever possible uh, to to these landfalls. So we're, try, so we're doing more of these apples-to-apples comparison. Um, cert, uh, certainly when we look at, at some of the measures for which we look at, Michael, uh, the central pressure was actually uh, quite low, 919 millibars at landfall. There's only a handful of hurricanes that have had lower pressures. Uh, when we look at the winds that we got from aircraft, there are only a couple of them that are comparable. Andrew, uh, when it made landfall in South Florida, had winds at or above that of Michael. Uh, and a lot of the other storms, uh, these Category 4s, we've had aircraft winds that are less than that of Michael. In the case of a couple of the other hurricanes, Hurricane Camille, we based primarily on the observed pressures along the Mississippi coast and the landfall area. We don't have exactly a landfall wind measurement, but we know the pressures in Camille were quite low, much lower than in most other hurricanes that have hit the United States. And Labor Day Hurricane had the, while none of the wind instruments in the Florida Keys even came close to surviving, we got an excellent barometric pressure that showed it had the lowest observed uh, pressure in the United States, uh, 26.35 inches when the storm came across. Now, we've measured lower with reconnaissance aircraft, but that was actually the lowest pressure we've gotten on land in an Atlantic hurricane, to the best of my knowledge. 
Uh, so the, I would not put any asterisks uh, by this. Yeah, if there's always that 10% uncertainty, but there's also a possibility a lot of these other high-end Category 4s, that 10% could go the other way. Mm-hmm. So as, as I remember from your discussion and your presentation at the National Hurricane Conference, there were two issues that you looked at really closely related to the information coming into the the hurricane hunters on what's called the SFMR or the the uh, wind measuring instrument that hangs underneath the aircraft. One was that the measurements right at landfall were in relatively shallow water, and the uh, SFMR uses the foam generated by the wind to essentially detect the wind speed in a kind of indirect kind of way. And then the other is that in Michael, as well as in Irma and some other very strong hurricanes, we've seen sort of these outlying extreme uh, wind readings uh, that kind of pop out of the other ones around it, and that just puts a little uncertainty on on it. And there's some research uh, going on about that. Could you explain, you know, how you uh, uh, examined those two issues and and what they uh, ended up, what the conclusion ended up being at the end of your analysis? Okay, the. SFMR, or Step Frequency Microwave Radiometer, is an instrument that we fly on the reconnaissance aircraft. It's essentially a radio antenna that's pointed down at the ocean surface. And as you said, it's listening to the radio microwave emission from the foam on the ocean surface. Now, the amount of foam on the ocean surface in a hurricane is related to the wind speed. So the higher the wind speed, the more foam and the stronger signal you're going to get on the Step Frequency Microwave Radiometer. However, there are other things that affect that. And as uh, shallow water, you get a difference in how the waves break because the waves like to break more in the shallower water. And therefore, you're changing the relationship of how much foam there is for the wind speed. And as you said, we found out in some other hurricanes that uh, the... Well, some of the data we got from the SFMR instrument uh, in the last two or three years did not match some of our expectations from the other data we got from the airplane, particularly the uh, winds that the airplane was getting at 10,000 feet. In the case of Michael, we had uh, enough, the SFMR data that we had, we actually had some data dropouts that we had to deal with, uh, because the airplane was getting shaken around so badly flying through the hurricane, uh, it came in in that 155 to 160 mile per hour range, and there was one or two data points that were prob- that looked like they were significantly higher, and uh, we have to go and investigate that a little bit more thoroughly. Uh, the- We've not yet resolved all the issues with the SFMR for for Michael and probably won't for a couple of years with the research that we're doing. But certainly there was the SFMR data supported something in that 155 to 160 mile per hour range, but there was enough uncertainty there that by itself we would not have made Michael a Cat 5 based strictly on that. And what we hope is that when uh, some of this work gets done and then we take another look at how the particulars of the, of the data were measured in Michael, whether they were close enough into the shallow water that this was a that the, this shoaling and this changes in the foam were an issue. Uh, we can go back and review that. But uh, as things stand right now, um, it was just one of those things that the data was kind of falling in that uh, general threshold right at the border of category four to category five, and. Same thing for a lot of the other data that we had, which is why we took a look at in, in great detail. But uh, we're, the, the, 
the final conclusions on the SFMR and Michael are, are still not done. Probably won't be done for another couple of years. We'll have to go, uh, once we finish the ongoing research, how well the instrument works at these high wind speeds, we may go back and take another look at that. Although it's unlikely that we'll find anything that will justify dropping the winds back to Category 4. We think we got pretty good solid data on everything else. So it's kind of a preponderance of the evidence uh, is the way you, you, you state it. No one piece of evidence by itself can necessarily be enough when you're right at the line, but if you have multiple pieces that point in the same direction, you feel confident. That's, that's exactly it. There was no one particular piece of evidence of all the data we looked at that justified the, the upgrade, but we looked at everything we could get our hands on, aircraft data, of surface observations, radar data, and sat down and take a look at it in ways we weren't able to do in real time. And uh, in that regard, we uh, just, that was the preponderance of the evidence, as you say, was more in favor of 160 miles per hour than 155. I feel like we're pulling on maybe a little string here, a little piece of yarn, because let's say that in two years from now, Dr. Bevan, you guys come back and you say, hey, this SFMR, excuse me, SFMR data is, this is good stuff, and it's it's very likely that these are quite accurate. Um, so you have that. Let's just imagine. Uh, would Michael's wind speeds, could they change again? What about other storms? Could they be reanalyzed as well? And uh, do you have any early feeling on what that research would yield? Uh, I do not have an early feeling on what that research would yield. Uh, we would, I think, have to go back and take a look at some past storms where we made the, these decisions across these thresholds, like Tropical Storm Hurricane, uh, Category 2, Category 3, Category 4, Category 5, and see if we need to tweak some of these, but right now I don't have a good feeling about how this would go because there's just too many factors involved that are kind of tugging in all sorts of different directions. So, uh, yeah, there is a chance we'll be going back and taking a look at this, but uh, at the moment I don't. Uh, there's, there's, I couldn't tell you systematically how it would change things because I, I don't have a good feel for that. All right. Well, as always, there are so many things uh, that that go on on a continuous basis to understand the data. I mean, this is what led to Hurricane Andrew being reanalyzed as a Category 5 uh, 10 years after the fact because science uh, moved forward and, and we learned more about the structure of hurricanes. Uh, Jack, which brings me to the to the one of your other really big jobs that I think is, is fascinating is that you're a key voice on the Committee of Meteorologists that looks at data from hurricanes of the past to come up with the best possible historical record. So when people quote some kind of information about a past hurricane, they're, they're quoting the work of you and your committee. Uh, you said, for example, that using the criteria you use for past hurricanes, that the pressure of 919 uh, would have uh, led you in the direction of calling Michael a Category 5. Uh, but let me just pin you down on that. So if you if you were looking at this historically with a 919 pressure and knowing what you know about the radius of maximum winds, would that uh, would that fall in the Category 5 bucket using the criteria you use for a storm from the 30s or 20s or, or farther back? It, it would. And to explain this a little bit, uh, for the last, coming up on 20 years now, we've been doing a reanalysis of the old tropical cyclone database we had here at the National Hurricane Center called the Hurricane Data, or HERDAT. And going back 
using our more modern understanding of science and whatever data we could come up with, and that in itself we could uh, do a very long spiel on, <laughs> go on for a couple of hours. But uh, we, as part of this process, we wanted to try to come up with a way that we could systematically fit some of these observations together. Because particularly in the, in the 1800s, when we started this reanalysis project, uh, started looking at those old sources from that era, we would only get maybe one data point, and that data point might be a pressure of a ship that sailed through the eye. So what we wanted to do was sort of set up a little calibration where we say if we had this pressure, the winds would be in this vicinity, and then we uh, did some climatological work. Uh, a couple of my colleagues here at the office and also some people out in the field uh, did some uh, climatological studies of the characteristics of hurricanes, taking into account the central pressure, the position, whether they were high latitude or low latitude, how large the eye was, the radius of maximum winds, was it big or small, and we put together a series of what we call wind pressure relationships that would help us serve as a first guess for what kind of wind values we were going to use as part of this reanalysis. So we weren't just sticking the values in there at random, uh, that we actually had a systematic way of coming up with the values that we would put in. Now, of course, there's a certain amount of imprecision in all this. But by the standards that we set up for this project, we have a storm like Michael making landfall of the Florida Panhandle, rapidly intensifying at landfall. A uh, relatively small eye was down to about 12 nautical miles, which is uh, well, 10, about 14 statute miles, and it's a little smaller than the average for a storm-making landfall of the Florida Panhandle. And rel relatively fast motion, it was up to about 15-plus miles per hour when it made landfall. And the central pressure of 919 millibars, by the standards we would use on the reanalysis project, our first estimate of the landfalling intensity would be category 5, 160 or maybe even a little bit more than that miles per hour. So uh, if we were handed this storm in 1918 rather than 2018, chances are we would have called it a category 5 based on everything we know about its parameters. We have the pressure measurements that were inside the eye. We have a fairly good idea of how small the storm was, and we know from the data that it was rapidly intensifying put all that together, and the, the conclusion we'd draw for a similar storm in years past was that it was Category 5. You, this, you know, reanalyzing of the historical hurricanes all the way back to 1851, this is fascinating. You guys are like uh, hurricane archaeologists, where you take a rib bone and a tooth, and out of that you can give us a good idea of what the storm actually looked like. It's, just, it's fascinating how little data you guys can, can put together and make... Um, just uh, this complete picture or as complete of a picture as you can. And, you know, we hear a lot about uh, the statistics based on the official record, like the number of Category 4s that have hit within 75 miles of a certain city. Uh, but if wind estimates have an error today of about 10% with all of our technology, does that mean that the so-called official wind speeds for past hurricanes have even larger potential errors? And do you even quantify the Arizona storms from 50 or 100 years ago? Uh, we have no ready way to quantify the errors on the older storms. We know that because many of them lack data, uh, we're lucky if we get 
observations that even at landfall and uh, for ship for storms out at sea from ships and such we're lucky if we get one a day and sometimes we could go several days without getting any we know there is much larger uncertainty for these older storms than there is for the, the more modern ones what we are trying to do in the reanalysis of that when we do have data of some sort and a lot of cases it's a barometer or a weather station that uh, survived this, the passage of the hurricane and gave us a record of what happened we came up with the framework to take that data and adapt it into what we understand about the hurricane now based on more modern data but yeah the the error bar on the older storms is going to be significantly larger I'll just point out the uh, one of the more interesting hurricanes of years past was the Great Galveston Hurricane of 1900, which is, of course, the deadliest hurricane record in the United States. But it was very hard to get a grasp on the exact intensity of that storm because the eye did not actually pass over Galveston, despite the tremendous storm surge there. And we did not have a good measurement of the, of the central pressure or there were the peak winds to let us know if it was a three or a four or even a five. And part of the research that we did as part of the reanalysis project was finding the data that let us better pinpoint the landfall location southwest of Galveston and that the Army Corps of Engineers barge got a central pressure measurement as the eye passed over that let us calibrate the intensity as category four. So, uh, but once again, error bar on that because the, the data points of the older storms are much sparser and certainly uh, the data is less rigorous than the data we have today. Jack, people who know about South Florida hurricanes can very often rattle off stats about the 1926 Great Miami Hurricane or the 1935 hurricane you mentioned or Donna or Cleo or Betsy and, of course, uh, Andrew. But there's one in the history books that nobody talks about because there was no Miami here at the time. But yet the the official record that you guys uh, put together uh, talks about a Category 3 hurricane that came over Miami Beach in September of 1888 and supposedly produced a 14-foot storm surge in Miami, according to Jay Barnes's book, which I, I, I looked it up. And it's, sure enough, he says it in there even though it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But so what do you know about that storm? I just find it so interesting because obviously if that were to happen again today, we would be talking about it for a long time. Well, the the 1888 hurricane is one of those that not a lot is known about because the data record is very incomplete. We have a few points here and there that help us calibrate the track and the intensity uh, we know it formed over the best we can tell it formed near or over the Bahamas. It might have formed east of there, but we, we don't have the data to tell that. We know it crossed South Florida, moved across the southwestern part of the Florida Peninsula, and then out to the Gulf of Mexico, and then turned northward, somewhat like Hurricane Andrew, and made landfall in southeastern Louisiana, best we can tell, past west of New Orleans. Uh, in terms of the impacts in South Florida, as you pointed out, it was really before the city of Miami was was founded, and our and landfall intensity of that as Category 3 is based largely on that 14-foot storm surge that Barnes talked about in his book. And uh, it, we don't have a lot of other hard data to work with, but to get a storm surge that high here in South Florida would require a fairly significant hurricane. Now, how good is that surge value? Does it include waves? Is it pure surge? Is it, how much does it inundate? We don't have a lot of information on. 
and certainly if any more ever comes to light on how that was determined or any other data we can get, we can certainly go back and re-examine the landfall of the 1888 hurricane. But uh, best as we can tell, and the, the, in terms of southeast Florida, that 14-foot surge is the best data point we've got. It was a major hurricane here at landfall. But uh, once again, the error bar on that is going to be quite large because we're basing it on one uh, data point taken from a book that we are not we don't know exactly where it came from or how it was produced. Yeah, we don't really know where the 14 foot was, right? We don't know if that was in Biscayne Bay or if that was on Miami Beach, for example. Yeah, and we don't know the gory details of where it was measured, but we do know by comparing it to the likes of Andrew and the 26 hurricane and the other hurricanes that have come through here that it had to that the storm had to have a pretty good amount of punch wherever exactly it was measured to get a surge that high in the in southeastern Florida. It had to be a pretty powerful hurricane. Jack, where are you all in the process of updating the information in the database for historic hurricanes? And are, do you see any big surprises coming? Uh, we are currently working through the 1960s. Uh, the, as a matter of fact, we're just finishing up the updates of 1965 and uh, we'll hopefully publish them later this summer into the official record. And uh, the biggest changes will be in the period from 1961 to 1965. I don't think there are going to be any tremendous surprises. Certainly we're not going to be upgrading any U.S. landfalls to Category 5 or anything like that. We may be adjusting uh, some of the intensity of some of the other landfalling storms, uh, uh, for example, Hurricane Carla in 1961 was well known to be a powerful hurricane, but the value that uh, the winds that we actually had in the hurricane database may have been a little too high. So uh, we're, we're, we may be adjusting that back to a little bit more in line with what uh, the other data indicates. Uh, I should point out, uh, talk about how some of the data has changed over the years. When the early aircraft flew in there, the, a lot of the wind estimates on the early aircraft tended to be a bit on the high side. So it may have introduced for some of those uh, storms in the 50s and 60s a little bit of a high bias in their intensities. We have a bit more confidence in the winds today, even though with the SFMR and the issues we have with Michael, they can still be a little, uh, little troubling from time to time. But uh, you'll see that coming out later this summer into the official record. Uh, we are working, uh, Chris Lancy, who is spearheading the effort, is working up into the late 60s and early 70s right now. The committee is reviewing the entries in the late 60s at this point. All right. Uh, Jack, um, before I let you go, uh, I know you're an FSU guy. You got your master's and Ph.D. there, as I recall. And I started there I guess you started there just after I left, if I calculate that right. But what got you interested in weather in the first place? I caught the weather bug at a very young age back in elementary school. And I can't put my finger on exactly what it was that that set me off, but uh, I did catch that way back when. And uh, had there been... I mean, I had a wonderful interest in all natural sciences. I had a very excellent uh, natural science teacher in high school. And I was also interested, in addition to hurricanes, volcanoes, and earthquakes, and also uh, astrophysics. And had there been volcanoes in Louisiana, I'd probably be a volcanologist right now. Uh, but we had hurricanes instead. And it just I've just been I had this fascination for weather and for earth sciences for, for as, almost as long as I can remember. And I started uh, my first semester in 
Florida State was 1985. Uh, started working with one of the professors there, Henry Fuelberg, and then got my master's under him, and then got my Ph.D. under Dr. Krishnamurti, who unfortunately passed away last year, right. but mm-hmm. the le- legendary tropical meteorologist there. Yes, I, uh, I knew them uh, well in, in my time at FSU as well. Dr. Jack Bevan, uh, thank you so much for being with us from the National Hurricane Center. My congratulations to you and to Stacey Stewart there for really an outstanding uh, hurricane report. I mean, all the, the reports that come out are, are great, but I thought that that was just uh, exceptional. All right, Jack, thanks. Uh, we'll see you at the Hurricane Center soon, I'm sure. You're welcome, Brian, and thanks for having me on. So it, if you are really interested in the science of hurricanes, I mean, I know you've read the report, Luke. It's, it's so detailed, but, uh, but I found it so clear. Well, yeah, they are thorough. I mean, yeah. they go through that yeah. thing with a fine Well, that's comb. Jack and Stacy too. Ooh, man. <laughs> I mean, just by personality. They're both very <laughs> detail-oriented people, but, you know, to all our benefit. Actually. Yeah, oh, absolutely. The right people on the job. And, yeah. and it is. And, they, you know, the, the, the points that they make and the things that stand out to them that I think the average, you know, meteorologist that might look at it might, you know, just dismiss it, not think about it. Right. They'll the, the focus in on these little details and say, well, what does that mean? And uh, <clears throat> could it have been, you know, the— of course, the Category 5, and could it have been possibly stronger, that SFMR rating? You know, that's fascinating to me because uh, Max Mayfield, when I first started working at WPLG, one of the first things that we talked about when Irma was coming through was SFMR data and how the stronger the storm is, the more reliable that data tends to be. So now that we're coming back and we're seeing some of these outliers and, and the interesting notion that the strongest part of the storm most likely or may not be sampled, it's very fascinating. Right? Yeah, that's so that's generally taken to be the case, is that just think about the way an aircraft flies through a storm. It's making a pattern crisscrossing the storm, right? But it's taking lines through a large storm, and it doesn't go hunting for the strongest part of the storm. They make some effort to do that, but not necessarily would they find the strongest cell in the circulation, representative of the circulation. So they always take that into account. That's always in the back of their mind, uh, depending on the amount of data that comes in. If the data is a little bit sparse, then they might, and they look at the satellite and they say, wow, it looks like it might be strong over there. They'll tend to bump it up uh, and then sometimes adjust it in in the post-storm analysis after they get more data in, which is what happened in Michael. Well, and I keep thinking, too, about like Andrew, where you had that mesovortex that went around, and actually the strongest winds were on the northwest side. Was that right? Well, the, the oddity in Andrew was that Homestead, if you look at uh, the track, it came right over Homestead, directly over Homestead. But just to the north of Homestead, Naranja Lakes and into Cutler Ridge and places that had tremendous winds, you would have thought that the strongest winds there would have been from the east or the northeast or, or something like that because they were north of the track. If you think of a track of a hurricane going from east to west and the wind circulating around it, on the north side, generally you're going to get winds. They're going to uh, start from the northeast and then go east and then go southeast mm-hmm. on that side, right? But in the post-Andrew analysis, very detailed analysis of the way the trees fell, and damage was done, uh, they found that these ultra-strong winds were from the northwest there, from the wrong direction. So what that implied was that the center of circulation was farther north, 
not necessarily the center of circulation of the overall storm, which it wasn't, but of this mesovortex. And indeed, the lowest pressure center was analyzed farther north than the track mm-hmm. because of this large vortex that formed on the north side. So it was sort of a mini hurricane within a hurricane that warped the wind field, warped the pressure field across Andrew. And obviously caused just, you know, decimation where it hit, and that would have been a much smaller part of the storm and the chances that something like that could have been sampled, you know, again, highlighting how this But it wouldn't count if it was not representative of the circulation of the storm. Oh. So so it has to be sustained winds, remember, representative of the circulation of the storm. So I'm imagining, as you describe this, that there is this vortex that's going, like you sometimes see, Mm -hmm. you know, on satellite, you'll see these vortices that rotate around the storm. Those wouldn't necessarily count their peak wind speeds, or is this something different? I'm a little confused. Well, yeah, so so generally we think of what they do as being gusts. Okay. Right? Gusts over land are nominally 40% higher than the sustained winds. So... Uh, No. So the idea is that the winds that the National Hurricane Center attributes to a hurricane are representative of the general circulation of the hurricane, not an an isolated uh, uh, swirl that might develop. And because, as we know, whenever the wind blows over land and it blows super strong, you get these all kind of swirls. You get those giant swirls that you see in the eye, but you also get spin up vortices of all kinds and we generally treat them in the range of gusts, right? Over land, if the winds are blowing 100 miles an hour up to 140 miles per hour, say those gusts can be. And that's where the damage is done because that's where you get these extreme winds. So that's where you get this extreme uh, battering of the wind. You know, in, in, uh, in Hurricane Andrew, when I talked to people, I talked to many, many people after the storm, and 100% of them said when their house came apart, was when the wind went whoo, like that in a surge, in an instant surge. In other words, if you want to break down a door, you don't lean on it, you ram it, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right? It's, it's, so it's the gusts that do the damage, uh, but these general swirls and hurricanes generally we, we you know, attribute to be, being gusts okay. in just in terms of, of statistically. So uh, in the case of Michael, uh, you know, people were surprised, and uh, as you know, that, that such a thing could happen in the Panama City area. They, they really shouldn't have been. If they had looked at the work that uh, Jack Bevan and, and uh, Chris Lancey and the other folks working on the hurricane reanalysis team did there because they've analyzed three Category 3 storms in the 19th century and directly over Panama City. Yeah. You know, almost every place I've ever lived, people live in a little bit of weather denial. I grew up in St. Louis, and they said, we can't get hit by tornadoes because we have the Mississippi River. And they forget that in, like, 1904, there was a terrible EF4 that went through East St. Louis and decimated it. And in Norman, I went to college at the University of Oklahoma, and in Norman, they they called it the weather bubble. And I said, we've got the bubble over us, and it had something to do with uh, the Native Americans. Um, But... uh, yeah, then they've been hit, of course, many times. There's an EF3 that hit while I was there. And then it just, I think it's a, a, something natural that people like to do. Ah, it goes to the left, it goes to the north, it goes to the east, mm-hmm. uh, but it doesn't come here. And then it does. It and does. Well, it, and it in happened. the case of Panama City, it did three times bang, bang, bang in the second half of the 19th century. In 1975, Hurricane Eloise was not far away. So, 
Uh, anywhere, bottom line is anywhere on the Florida coast is is hurricane territory. Anywhere you on bet. the Texas coast, Louisiana, it's all hurricane territory until you get up to New England. All right, so that's our podcast f- for this week. If you have something you'd like us to cover, you have any questions, you can write to us at weatherpod at WPLG.com, weatherpod at WPLG.com, weatherpod at WPLG.com. For now, I'm Brian Norcross for Luke Doris here at the WPLG Local 10 Podcast Studio in Miami. Have a good week, and we're going to be back real soon. We're going to be back with another podcast this week with Jared Moskowitz, the Director of Emergency Management at the State of Florida. So we'll have uh, him for you here very soon. Until then, uh, take care of yourself. We'll see you soon.